Good to see all of you this morning. Go ahead and take your Bibles and open to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2 this morning. I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I can tell you on behalf of the Hebert tribe uh, that one of the things that we are thankful for this year is for this church family and what a blessing it is to be a, a part of uh, Moberly Baptist Church. Just so thankful to God for the blessing of a church family like this one. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, one of our family's uh, favorite things that we do on Friday, which is my day off, it's a, a, a family day for us, is that we like to go uh, find a great donut place. Can I get a witness? Anybody like some donuts in here? That's just one of God's good gifts to mankind. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's what the manna in the Old Testament tasted like, was a Krispy Kreme uh, donut. The thing with our kids, though, is that their, their personalities are varied, and so are their donut preferences. And so we'll pull up the donut window, and it's not just an easy order like, you know, a dozen glazed donuts. It's like this one wants a chocolate donut, and this one wants a strawberry donut, and this one wants a blueberry donut with sprinkles, and this one wants a glazed donut. And so when we come home, you open up the box, it's just this assortment of colors and flavors that are suited to fit each one's uh, preferences. When you come to the book of Colossians... There is a false teaching that is seeping into the church at Colossae that is multicolored. It is multi-flavored. There is a flavor for every preference. And uh, all of those flavors of heresy, all of those aspects of false teaching were, were designed to demote and detract from Christ. Every single one of the aspects of this false teaching sought to serve as a substitute for Christ or an addition to Christ. It's what I have called uh, the, the, the ideology of Jesus plus. Uh, these false teachers came into the church and said, Jesus is fine. Uh, he can have a place, but you really need something more than Christ if you're going to have an authentic relationship with God. And the reality is, is that that ideology is not far from any church. Even in 2022, there are churches and there are opportunities for any church, including this one, to fall prey to this idea that you need something more than Jesus to have a fulfilling relationship with God. A.W. Tozer uh, has a great quote that Mitch Fortner shared with me this week. Tozer said, there is a weakness among us in evangelical circles. Here's the weakness. We put a plus sign after Christ. Christ plus something else. It is always the pluses that ruin our spiritual lives personally. And it is always the additions that weaken the church. God has declared that Christ, His Son, is sufficient. That means He's enough. He is the way, the truth and the life. He is wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He is the wisdom of God and the power of God. And He gathers up in Himself all things, and in Him all things consist. So we do not want Jesus Christ plus something else. And that's what the Colossian heresy was seeking to do, that Jesus is not enough, that you need more than Christ to be fulfilled. Uh, we've just passed October 31st, which we observe in our country as Halloween. We typically associate it with gathering candy from strangers and all of those good things. But actually, there's a much more important reason to pay attention to October 31st, and that's because in 1517, Martin Luther kicked off the Protestant Reformation. So it's Reformation Day. And one of the heritages of the Protestant Reformation is something that, that we call, and the church has called for now 400 years, the five solas of the Reformation. 
And here's what the five solas are, that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. And all of this is known through Scripture alone, and it's for God's glory alone. That's the five solas. But, but the, the Protestant Reformation was trying to get us back to this idea that to have a relationship with God, you don't know, need Jesus plus good works, Jesus plus religion, Jesus plus rule keeping, Jesus plus enter X, Y, or Z, that it is grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. When you come to Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, Paul is taking this false teaching head on. He is addressing three aspects of this false teaching that really express three ways that we try to add to Christ. Um, and these are really three insufficient substitutes for an all-sufficient Christ. Paul is going to warn the Colossians against legalism, mysticism, and moralism without Jesus. He's going to warn them that legalism, mysticism, and moralism without Jesus represent three ways that the human heart tries to add to the work of Christ. And Paul writes this section to say, watch out for these. Chapter 2, verse 16 flows from a section that Paul has begun in chapter 2 and verse 8 where Paul warns them to watch out for any ideology that would seek to kidnap you away from Christ. And in verses 16 and following, he just goes into more detail about uh, all the ways that the human heart tends to manufacture ways to add to Jesus. And so I want us to dive into the text of this morning. I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 16, the word therefore. Just circle that or, or underline the word therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore in the Bible, you need to look and see what it is there for. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Um, yeah, so the, the word therefore is a connector word. Paul is saying, based on what I've just been talking about, therefore, on the basis of that, you need to pay attention to what I'm about to talk about. So what he has just talked about is the section in verses 8 through 15 where he's been describing the work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection that makes us new, that makes us alive, and makes us forgiven people who are restored to God. Okay? It's an encapsulation of the gospel. He's saying, therefore, based on this new status that you have because of the work, in Christ, of the work of Christ, based on that, I want you to watch out for some things. There are three things he tells us to watch out for. Number one, he says, beware of legalism. Beware of legalism. What you say, what is legalism? Legalism is the viewpoint that strict observance of God's law will merit favor with God. That if you keep the law enough, the law of God enough, if you cross all your T's and dot all your I's, and you pay attention and try to obey all of the Old Testament law, that if you do that perfectly enough, that God will accept you. That's legalism. Now, we know from Scripture the law of God is good, right? God's law is a delight, the Bible tells us. It is for our good. It is for our good because it tells us God's design for life. But if you think that your law-keeping will merit favor with God, 
That is legalism, and it's actually adding to the work of Christ. It's saying Jesus is not enough for me to be accepted. It is Jesus plus my ability to keep the law. And so look at what he says in verse 16. He says, therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Hey, what is he describing there? Food and drink on the one hand, and then a festival, a new moon, and a Sabbath day on the other hand. He's describing Old Testament law related to diet and days. There were diet laws in the Old Testament. For the Israelites, they had to pay attention to what they ate and what they drank. And so, for instance, if you go to Israel today, even to this day, the Jewish people will not eat bacon. There should be an outcry in this room right now. No bacon. It's not kosher, right? And so they're very strict about their diet. No, no bacon. Um, and they're very careful about what they eat and drink. And the whole idea Paul is addressing here is this idea that if you just pay a careful enough attention to what goes into your body, to what you eat, what you drink, that that will somehow merit favor with God. Paul says, don't let anybody judge you in this, in this matter. And then he deals with the topic of days. He says a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath day. So these describe just different holy days of the Jewish people, right? So the Jewish people had three major festivals every year. They, had, uh, they, they were feasts. They were like uh, big nationwide celebrations. They had the, the feast of Passover. They had the feast of uh, uh, tabernacles. And then they had the feast of, of weeks, and so, uh, or, or the feast of Pentecost. So three times a year, the whole nation would celebrate these festivals, Pentecost, Passover, and tabernacles. And then they had two what they called high holy days, okay, Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year, and then Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. So think about it, five different times a year, there were these special days that the people would observe. And then you have a new uh, element in in, uh, Israel that begins to emerge, it's called the Christian church. And all of a sudden, these Jesus followers are not observing these holy days. They're not paying attention to some of these Jewish festivals anymore. And there becomes a division in the church where some people in the church are saying, if you want to be accepted by God, you better pay attention to the holy days. If you want to be accepted by God, you better pay attention to the feasts and the festivals. And you better be careful about the diet rules and all of these different things. And all of that just represented for the Jewish people law-keeping. Keep the law and God will be happy with you. And Paul speaks to this and says, if you're in Christ, if you really understand the gospel, then don't allow anybody to judge you in these matters. Don't allow anybody to, to lay a law on you that says that you have to keep it in order to please God. Understand that the gospel is that God is already as pleased with you as he can possibly be if you are in Christ, because Christ is fully pleasing to the Father. So if Christ is fully pleasing to the Father and you're in Christ, then that means you are fully pleasing to the Father, whether or not you keep the Old Testament law. And you say, wow, diet, days, kosher laws, Sabbath, what does that have to do with me the week after Thanksgiving in 2022? Well, the reality is we have our own laws, don't we? Sometimes they relate to diet. Uh, uh, You know, I've told you the old adage, uh, We don't drink, we don't chew, or go with the girls who do. Those are diet laws. 
Or how about laws related to days? Well, I told you about my Sunday school teacher growing up. I got mad at me and a bunch of other of my 12-year-old friends because we played football after church one Sunday. He came out and said, this is the Sabbath. We don't play football on the, on the Sabbath, right? These are laws that we just kind of invent, that we create, that we think if we keep these laws, God will be happy with us. And Paul says, don't let anybody judge you in this. Now, listen, some of these things like diet, right? No, nobody's against a diet, theoretically anyway. I mean, some of these things might be a good idea, right? Like, it's, it's probably a good idea not to eat fried chicken and bluebell ice cream every single day of the week. That sounds like a good idea, but it's not a good idea, right? So some of these observances are, are probably a good idea, but, but they don't indicate, listen, they don't indicate your godliness. They don't indicate your godliness. It, it may be good to observe certain days, but that doesn't, that's not an indicator of your acceptance by God. That's Paul's... That's Paul's point. And so he says in verse 16, don't let anyone judge you. The word judge has the sense of being umpired or refereed. You know umpires in baseball, right? They call balls and strikes. A referee in basketball calls fouls. He's saying don't allow anyone to sit over you as the umpire of your godliness based on your law-keeping. Don't allow in the church for this legalistic mindset to creep in where you go around judging people who don't cross all the T's and dot all the I's exactly the way that you do, right? There was one prominent example of this in the early church. You can read about it in Romans chapter 14, where uh, there was a division that happened in the early church related to meat offered to idols. Anybody remember that particular controversy? Is it okay to eat meat that had been offered to idols? And here, here's the reality, right? If In the first century, um, if you wanted to get a good discount on steak, for Thanksgiving or whatever. You could go down to the local market and purchase food that had been offered as a sacrifice to an idol, been sitting out a little while, so you could sell it at a discount. And if you wanted to buy an economical meal for your family, get a little discount, it's like going to Sam's Club, okay? You could go down and buy meat that had been offered to idols and use that. Now, in the church, there were two opinions about whether that was okay. One said, how could you ever do that as a Christian? This is meat that's been offered to an idol, and you name the name of Christ, and you're willing to go to that pagan market and buy that meat and put it on your family's table. Don't you know the ungodly influences that are going to come into your home because you've bought that meat? And I just right, couldn't believe that any Christian in their right mind would buy meat offered to idols. And then there was a group over here that said, you know what? We're free in Christ to eat that kind of meat because God made the cow God can bless the cow, God can bless the barbecue, and it's okay to eat it. It's no problem. Loosen up. So you've got this division that happens in the church between people who think they're okay with the liberty of eating this meat, and then others who are legalistic about it, and they're judging one another. And Paul says, listen, don't judge one another. It's a matter of liberty. If you feel like you can do it, then do it. If you feel like you can't do it, then don't do it. But don't umpire one another. And that's exactly what he's saying right here. Don't umpire one another on the basis of whether you keep the law. Why is that the case? Well, look at the reason that he gives in verse 17. Because these things are a shadow of what was to come, but the substance is Christ. But Paul's saying the law was simply a shadow that pointed us forward to Jesus. So don't judge one another over whether you're keeping the law. 
But the law is the shadow, the substance is Christ. And don't mistake law-keeping for being Christ-honoring. Don't go back to the shadow when you have the substance, right? Listen, the law, the purpose of the law in the Old Testament was to point you forward to your need for Christ. But once you have Christ, you don't need to go back to the law. Does that make sense? It'd be like if you took your family to a state park, right? Let's say that you were going to go to Bob Sandlin State Park. You drive over there, and you get your family out, and you see the sign for the park. And you say, aha, we're here. Let's take a selfie. Get the family around the sign. Let's take a selfie. And then you load back up in the car, and you go back home. But you never actually go into the state park. You just stopped at the sign. You haven't really experienced the thing that the sign pointed to, right? And Paul is saying the law is a sign that points you forward to your need for Jesus. He says in Galatians, it is a schoolmaster, a tutor that leads us to Christ. But once you have Christ, don't, you don't need to go back to the sign. So the first thing that Paul says is to beware of this idea uh, that if you keep the law, you'll be accepted by God. Folks, Jesus is enough. Amen? But here's now a second warning. Not only does he tell us to beware of legalism, but he, be, he tells us to beware of mysticism. Mysticism. There was a group of people in this Colossian church that were propagating the view that if you really want to have a fulfilling relationship with God, that you need Jesus plus some mystical experience. That you need Jesus plus some fantastic story about some kind of divine encounter. And by the way, that happens in our day as well, doesn't it? That you need Jesus plus experience. And that was happening in the first century. And Paul writes to tell them, beware of this kind of view that you need Jesus plus mysticism, Jesus plus some weird spiritual experience, Jesus plus some strange divine encounter. Maybe you have wondered sometimes, you've heard somebody tell a story about some experience they've had and you've said, I don't have a story like that. I didn't have some kind of weird encounter with an angel or something like that. Do I have a, a real relationship with God? Do I have enough? The gospel tells us you don't need Jesus plus some mystical experience. Jesus is enough. So look at what Paul says in verses 18 and following. He says, let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels claiming access to a visionary realm. Okay, he stacks up three things, ascetic practices, angel worship, and some kind of special visions. I'm grouping those together under the heading mysticism. Okay, this viewpoint that you have to have this weird, strange spiritual experience. What are these, these three things? Ascetic practices. That was simply the view that if you deny yourself of any kind of joy in life, any kind of indulgence, you just practice rigid and extreme self-denial that you can have some kind of unique experience. So the way that this would work is that they would treat the body severely. They would beat themselves, they would starve themselves, and here's the reality. If you starve yourself enough, you will have visions. You'll start seeing things right? And so that was the idea. They would almost like work themselves into a trance by mistreating the body. That was ascetic practices. So he says, don't, don't 
be disqualified or judged or condemned by those who delight in that, and then angel worship. So the idea that, that you have to have some kind of weird encounter with an angel. Um, you know, angel worship is something that has happened for a long, long time. In fact, you even see it in the Bible, don't you? Anytime you see in the Bible an angel appears to people, what do people normally do? They normally fall down and begin to worship the angel, right? And the angel has to say, hey, get up. Like, I'm just a messenger from the Lord. Don't worship me. But even in the Bible, people were worshiping angels. And we do have kind of a weird fascination in our culture with angels. We even had a TV show back in the 90s. Anybody remember Touched by an Angel? You remember that? And there's some unusual kind of folk theology, if you will, related to angels. People have unusual stories about encounters with angels and this, that, and the other. And that was present in the first century. And people going around saying, listen, if you, you want to know that you really know God, you need to have some kind of mystical experience with an angel. And then the third thing, ascetic practices, angel worship. And then number three, he says, watch out for those who claim access to a visionary realm. Beware of those who come in and say, I've had some unusual experience with God where God talked to me, and you are less than if you don't have that same kind of experience. Some of you have a translation that translates it this way, beware of those who take their stand on visions. What that means is beware of those who find their confidence, not in Christ, but in this weird experience that they've had. And he says, literally, don't let anyone condemn you in this. The word condemn there means literally disqualify. Um, everybody knows what it means to be disqualified, right? If you run a race, but you cheat, um, you're, you can be disqualified, right? We, there's a whole era of baseball in the 1990s where, uh, you know, players did amazing things, and then they found out later they were you know, using steroids. I had a Sammy Sosa baseball card that at one point was worth a lot of money that now is not worth anything because of steroids, right? Because there's an asterisk next to the stat. Paul's saying there are some people who want to put an asterisk next to your relationship with God because you've not had some kind of weird mystical experience. And don't let them disqualify you because you have not had some kind of unusual weird encounter with the divine. Why? Look at the text. In verses 18 and 19, Paul gives us two reasons for this. Number one, he says, because in verse 18, such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He's saying there are people going around in the church telling you that you have to have this weird mystical experience, and they appear very spiritual. But in reality, they are being inflated by their unspiritual mind. They are inflated, but they're empty, like a balloon. They look like they have this robust relationship with God, but in reality, there's emptiness there. They appear as if they're very, very spiritual, but really, that's, those ideas are manufactured, manufactured by an unspiritual mind. Why? Because they are adding to Christ. They're saying that you need Jesus plus some mystical experience, Jesus some, plus some encounter with an angel, Jesus plus some, uh, you know, vision uh, in the charismatic movement, Jesus plus, you know, the expression of charismatic gifts, whatever, Jesus plus. And Paul's saying that is empty. It appears spiritual, but it is in fact unspiritual. And then he says in verse 19, those people are not holding to Christ. Look what he says in verse 19. He doesn't hold on to the head 
from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. Right? This is just a restatement, a restatement of what Paul has been saying throughout the letter to the Colossian church, that God wants you to grow. He wants you to grow in Christ. But the way that you grow is by being connected to Jesus. In the same way that roots are connected to the soil or a body is connected to a head, if you want to grow with the growth that comes from God, it's going to be because you're connected to Jesus as your head. And he's saying these people who are going around saying that you need some weird mystical experience, they're not connected to Jesus as the head. They're interested in the spiritual, but not the scriptural. They're interested in mystical practices, but not Christ. Folks, don't you see this in our culture? There is a real interest in spirituality. In fact, if you go to Sedona, Arizona, it's like the headquarters of spirituality. You'll see people who have divining rods, and they work themselves into trances and meditate and all these different things, and they think there's something special. There's a real interest in spirituality. But listen to me very carefully. Not everything that is spiritual is godly. There is a godly spirituality where your spirit is enveloped by the Spirit of God, but just because you encounter something spiritual doesn't mean it's from God. Paul, throughout his letters, will talk about evil spirits. He calls them rulers and principalities, the authorities of this evil world. He'll use all that kind of language to describe a very real spiritual world that you can encounter. But not every spirit is from God. That's why 1 John tells us to what? Test. Anybody ever read 1 John? Test what? The spirits, right? To see if they be from God. Not everything that is spiritual is godly. Not everything that is mystical or experiential is from Christ. I, I can tell you that if I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning and saw some kind of weird spirit sitting on the end of my bed, and that spirit told me that it was okay to divorce my wife because, you know, she burnt the toast or whatever, by the way, she never burns the toast. She just, she's the best toast maker. Um, but let's just say that some spirit appeared to me and said, you can do that. Folks, I can tell you that is not from God because that is not what the Bible says. And so we have to beware of mysticism, beware of this idea that just any experience is legitimate. We can have experiences that may be real experiences, but they are wrong experiences. They are not from Christ. They are not godly. And so Paul says, beware, they don't hold to Christ. But now here's a third warning. Beware of legalism. Beware of mysticism. Here's the third thing Paul warns them about, this third aspect of the Colossian heresy. It's what I'm going to call moralism without Jesus. Moralism without Jesus. Beware of moralism without Jesus. Moralism without Jesus means rule-keeping without the gospel. It's the idea that if you keep moral rules, that God will be pleased with you, and that the basis of your acceptance is your moral performance. 
And Paul is going to warn the church about this. Look what he says in verse 20. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? Why do you submit to rules? What kind of rules? Look at verse 21. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Okay, notice those are in quotation marks. He's quoting rules that were floating around the Colossian church. He's saying, you're submitting to these rules. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Now, let me just ask you a real quick question. This is not a trick question. Are, as Christians, are there some things that we should not handle, taste, or touch? Yes or no? Yes. That's absolutely right. There are some things as a believer in Christ, a follower in Christ, that I should not handle, taste, or touch. So there are rules that matter. There are ethical guidelines. There are moral standards that matter. Paul is not condemning the idea of morality. He is addressing the idea of stoic moralism without Christ. Just the notion that if you keep these rules that you'll be accepted by God. That if you just keep the law, keep the rules, keep the regulations, that God will look at you and say, I'm happy with you. That's what he's addressing. He's addressing moralism minus Jesus. Stoic rule-keeping without the gospel. This ideology that if I'm just careful enough to pay enough to the attention to the rules, God will be happy with me. Some of you were raised with the mentality or the ideology that God would only be pleased with you if you kept all the rules. Or was I the only one? And we have a lot of them, right? Some of them are good rules. Uh, don't, you know, there, there are, are many that are good moral standards that we would say is in keeping with Scripture. Uh, there are some that we've just invented. Uh, you know, some of them in recent church history, like in the last hundred years, some of you of a certain generation will remember some of these. Uh, like, a Christian can't play cards. Anybody remember that one? Anybody willing to admit that you're able to remember that one? <laughs> you can't play cards. Or you can't play cards that have a face on them, right, because it's a graven image. Don't play bingo. Don't play dominoes. Uh, how about this one? Don't dance. Anybody? You've heard that one, right? Don't dance, right? Now, listen, we still kind of have that one today, right? It's like you can move your hands, but just don't move your feet. As long as your feet stay in place, you're fine, right? But you can't lift one or the other. In fact, a sweet lady in our church told me after the 8 o'clock service that she remembers one pastor saying to her, uh, a praying knee and a dancing foot don't belong on the same limb. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, what about David? David loved to dance and prayed, loved to pray. But we've, we, we have had these rules, right? Uh, I remember one that I've, I've heard growing up in, in church, and that is don't wear a ball cap in church. I learned that one the hard way. I walked into church one day wearing a ball cap, and I found out that was a rule. I didn't know it was a rule, but it was a rule. And, you know, it wasn't until many years later when I'd actually read my Bible, I realized that's actually not in the Bible. <sighs> that, where did that one come from? Who knows? I don't know where it came from, but it didn't come from Scripture. But it's this idea that if you keep the rules, God will be happy with you. 
Now, I am not against having good moral standards, and neither is Paul. In fact, in Colossians 3, which we're going to begin next week, Paul addresses in a, various, a very serious matter our morality as believers. He's going to say things like, put to death what belongs to your flesh. Put away sinful desires. Put on the new man. He's going to talk in very serious manners about the importance of morality, ethics, and righteousness. All of those things matter, but not apart from a relationship with Christ. And here's the deal. Moralism without Jesus will still send you to hell. Moralism, divorced from a relationship with Christ, still condemns. And you see that illustrated in what is probably the most famous story in the Bible, the story of the prodigal son, which is actually the story of the prodigal sons. The younger son gets all the press because he's rebellious. He leaves his father's home and runs away. He's immoral. But there's an older son. The older brother is moral. He is a rule keeper. He stays at home. He helps take care of his father's land, all of these different things. He doesn't run away. He's not immoral. But who's the real prodigal at the end of the story? The younger son turns in repentance and comes home to the father and is welcomed in, but the older son remains outside the house. And in his stoic moralism, is distant from the heart of God. That's the whole point. That, that there are many ways of running from God. Immorality is one way, but morality apart from the heart of the Father is another way of running from God. And moralism can actually even mask a heart that is distant from God. I grew up in a, a church for a number of years that had a legalistic, moralistic kind of tone to it. And this was the message that I grew up with, was that if you'll keep the rules, God will be happy with you. And, and so, it's all about the moral standards. And, if, and so, here's what happened. A lot of people conformed to those rules. But the moment that those constraints, whether it was their parents or the influence of their church or whatever, the moment those were removed, that outward conformity began to change because while there was outward conformity, there wasn't inner transformation. And here's the deal. Rule-keeping can't change your heart. Only Christ can do that. And what we need actually is not to keep the rules. We need a heart change. The problem is not that I don't keep the rules. The problem is that my heart is corrupt. And it expresses itself, manifests itself in a thousand ways. The real problem is my heart. And what I need is not outward external conformity to a certain set of rules, even if they're good rules. What I need is deep-seated inward change that can only be produced by Christ. And that begins to then flesh itself out externally. And Paul is going to make exactly that point in the next couple of verses. We're almost done, but I don't want you to miss what Paul says because he starts in verses 22 and 23 to give us reasons why rule-keeping isn't enough. Look what he says in verse 22. He says, all of these rules refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. 
They are human commands and doctrines. In other words, it's the dogma of man, not the doctrine of God. And they have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion. Notice that phrase, self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body. But notice this, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. In other words, rule-keeping can't change your heart. Regulations and rules that humans make up don't have any value in actually curbing your sin. They maybe just externally conform you for a moment. If I had a, a rod of metal and I wanted to bend it, I wanted to change its shape, I could take that rod of metal and I could bend it into the shape I want it to be. And one of two things is going to happen. Number one, I'm going to bend it, and as long as I'm holding on to it, it will stay in that new shape. But the moment I release my hands, it will pop back up into place. Or I can bend it so much that it snaps in two. And that's what rule-keeping does apart from Jesus. It either conforms for a moment until the restraints are removed, or you bend until you break. But if I heat it up, that metal, if I warmed it from the inside so that it became malleable, then I could bend it and I could remove my hands and it would stay in place. And you see, that's what the gospel does. The gospel melts our heart. The gospel changes us from the inside out. And so then we can become conformed to the image of Christ rather than just being shaped into external conformity. But it begins with Jesus. Amen? It begins with Jesus. And, and I'm telling you, it is not that morals don't matter, but the question is, which comes first, your obedience or your acceptance? And here's the truth, folks. We don't obey and keep the rules in order to be accepted by God. The gospel tells us we are accepted by God on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. Therefore, we obey. You see, our righteousness, our morality, our ethics, all those things matter, but it's the question of which comes first, our morality that makes us accepted or our acceptance that makes us moral. And the gospel says it's, it's Jesus first. Jesus is the one who changes us from the inside out, and then we obey in response to his work. You are accepted already in Christ, therefore you respond to that in obedience. It's the difference, folks, between rules and relationship. And, and some of us were raised to believe that God would only accept us if we kept the rules. It was all about our work for God, but the gospel is about God's work for us in Christ. And it's, it's the difference between taking the stairs and taking the elevator. If you take the stairs, it's all about your effort. The elevator, you're just being lifted by some, some other effort, right? The, the gospel is not about your effort to please God. You, you work hard enough to please God. You perform enough to please God. No, the gospel is the fact that you could never climb the, the, the moral stairs well enough. And so God sent his son, Jesus, who performed for you. And listen, here's the good news of the gospel. Christ's performance gains our acceptance. You're accepted by God on the basis of his performance and not your own.
So if you're a follower of Jesus, here's how you respond to that. Number one, you rest in it. Number two, you rejoice in it. And number three, you respond to it with obedience. But the kind of obedience that starts with deep-seated change and joy that is driven by Jesus' work for you. If you're not a Christian here today, maybe you're watching online or you're the first time you've ever been in a church, here's what you should do with this message. Receive what Christ has done for you. Receive it as a gift. Receive this truth that there's no amount of good works or moral effort or rule keeping that you can do to please God. Jesus has done it all for you and you just receive his gift of salvation allow him to change you from the inside out. Amen? If you've never done that before, We'd love to talk with you about how you can do that, how you can turn from your sin, put your hope and your trust in Christ, and you can have a relationship with God based on his performance and not yours. After the service, just go out into the lobby. There are decision prayer partners with badges. You can identify them very clearly. They'd love to talk with you about how you can know Jesus in this way. Church, let's stand together. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we are so thankful for the gospel, the good news of Jesus and what he's done for us. Help us to rest in it to rejoice in it, and to respond to it in obedience. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who maybe they are just trying as hard as they can to keep the rules so that they'll be acceptable, Lord, I pray today that they would receive the gift, the free gift of salvation in Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Let's